Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Clara and Carolina, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on computational units in the brain. So just to briefly introduce the topic, I first want to define what computation means and what a computational unit means. So computation is simply just a function that is used to perform a task and a basic unit of computation is a unit in a functional system that performs its simplest computation. And so in a computer, for example, this would be its transistor. But in the brain, it is controversial what the computational unit is because, as we've discussed in many previous episodes, the brain can be conceptualized at many scales. So there are actually multiple computational units. Yeah, I found it really challenging preparing for this episode because the term computational unit sounds incredibly intimidating, <laughs> um, especially from like an experimental neuroscientist point of view. Yeah. And knowing nothing about theoretical neuroscience or computer science, I struggled. And so for me personally, the way that I understand computational unit in the brain is more of like information processing or information transfer? Yeah, I would agree because following the definition that a computation is a function used to perform a task, a lot of the brain's function is information transfer or encoding. Arguably that's the brain's prime function. So yeah, I would also define it that way. So for a little bit of history, <laughs> McCulloch and Pitts first proposed in 1943 that the neuron represents the basic unit in the brain. And this may seem quite straightforward because when you think of the brain, you think of neurons and they seem like quite an easy unit that you can conceptualize. But as we've discussed quite a lot in our episode on predictive coding and dendrites, neurons perform both linear and non-linear computations, uh, which basically just means that they perform many different types of computations that make them more complex than a simple information in, information out model. And so this leads me to the question, how can we define computational units in the brain? And in my understanding, there are seven main different types of computational units that we can think of. And for me, this is, I'm just going to list them first. Mm -hmm. So this is genes, which defines the structures and the structural connections in the brain. And then dendrites, which again, referring to our previous episode on predictive coding and dendrites, these are the extensions of neurons that can perform many different computations. Thirdly, neurons themselves, which integrate a lot of information. And then fourthly, the connections between neurons, which again is structural and it can determine the limitations to what the system, the system meaning two neurons, can perform with each other. And then fifth is neural assemblies and ensembles, so collections of neurons that are either structurally connected or functionally connected in that they'll be active at the same time. Sixth is cortical columns, which I definitely want to expand on later. Mm -hmm. And finally, large-scale neural networks, which can be made up of brain oscillations, like brain waves, or brain states. And these are more regulatory that acts across the whole system, meaning the whole brain. So yeah, really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to dig into all of these different types of computational units. Another important thing that I wanted to mention is there may be more. If you have any other suggestions of a computational unit in the brain, then please get in touch or comment on any of our social medias or anything. But yes, on top of that, interactions between these different scales of computation can also offer a new level of complexity. I was actually going to ask you, 
um, which I guess we can explore further as we discuss what each of these computational units are and how they behave, whether you think or whether it's even applicable to think of applying the same rules in one level of computational unit or within one system mm-hmm. to other levels, such as like the neuronal level versus the circuitry level and brain-wide level. That's a really interesting question. Maybe I should have prefaced this episode by saying I'm not yet computational neuroscientist. (laughs) Um, But I think to a certain extent, I think there are certain rules that can only be applied to certain skills. But this is something we explored as well in the episode with Shubham Mm -hmm. on methodologies of neuroscientific investigation, where we were saying, can theoretical neuroscience be applied to multiple skills, or is it like brain region specific, for example? So yeah, if you think about computational modeling, so modeling a neural circuit or system or neuron as a artificial network or an electrical circuit, it has actually been, I think it is quite comparable at the level of a single neuron and at the level of a neural network. Mm -hmm. So for example, as more has been discovered about how dendrites can integrate multiple inputs and perform multiple computations on them, specifically non-linear ones, then this is what has previously been recapitulated in neural networks of like multiple neurons. And now it's being found that multiple, like these computations are performed at the level of a single neuron. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it's quite comparable. Yeah, and that reminds me of a paper by the group of Matthew Larkin and also this podcast episode he was featured on on Brain Inspired, which I really love, where he does talk about his experiments on dendrites and he does patch clamping on dendrites and comparing patch clamping on the soma versus the dendrite and how it's actually different Mm -hmm. and potentially a new type of action potential is observed in the dendrites. And so I just thought it was interesting whether or not we've been neglecting that level of the system and just observing the soma and then deducing all of these other computational outputs and inputs from this one level. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think dendrites is something that previously not been really looked into because, I mean, it's a whole another level of complexity. So, of course, when we're researching, we start with one level, which is already complex enough, the neuron. Mm -hmm. And then over time, once we understand that, we see more commonalities at a smaller scale. But also something I find quite interesting, which can be studied theoretically and computationally and can also be applied at multiple scales, is plasticity. Mm, Yeah. So there are multiple plasticity rules and I think it's a very theoretical field because in order to navigate how the brain changes and is plastic, we need to ask the right questions and in order to come up with the right questions, we need to formulate theories and that's something that's being done a lot in the world of neuroplasticity. For example, a recent paper published by Yuliana Borgieva's lab called The Formation and Computational Implications of Assemblies in Neural Circuits, where they describe that a set of plasticity rules are required in order to form and maintain neural assemblies. And neural assemblies are collections of neurons that are connected to one another. And this is related to, but distinct from, neural ensembles, which are collections of neurons that are active in response to the same stimuli or active at the same time. Um, And usually when neurons are connected, they are active at the same time, but this isn't always the case. I just wanted to Mm -hmm. make sure that is clear. But yeah, they 
describe how the most normal form of plasticity that occurs is Hebbian plasticity, which is that neurons that are active at the same time become more strongly connected. This can be used to form an assembly. However, on top of this form of plasticity that enhances the formation of connections, you also need something called symmetry breaking in order to break up the brain into different distinct assemblies. And then you also need competition to maintain the separation of these assemblies so that the neurons within one assembly stay in that assembly and don't leave. And finally, you need stability to make sure that the assemblies can coordinate with each other and one doesn't like completely override the other. And so it's really interesting the way they frame these rules as being applied to the maintenance and formation of neural assemblies. And then the implications for this in assemblies being necessary for memory. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because plasticity is thought to be the mechanism that underlies memory. And usually if you think there's a theory of plasticity, you think it's a theory of memory. Mm -hmm. But here, if we think of it this way, it's plasticity rules govern the formation of these computational units, which then carries out the function of memory. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a little bit like, I don't know if it's even hierarchical in the sense of feedback or feedforward, but it's one mechanism which is this plasticity affecting, yeah, the feedback formation of memories. Mm-hmm. Could you expand a bit more? Yeah, so Juliana mentions that uh, memory formation requires a change in feed-forward synapses between the ensembles. So I guess it's a way in that this flow of information from exterior sensory stimuli affecting the plasticity, which then affects the memory formation. However, contradicting that, she also says that potentially the coordinated neural activity that arises from these ensembles is generated by the local network instead of the feedforward inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, yeah, we're, we're still trying to figure out how this all connects to each other yeah, and definitely. what modulates each other. Yeah, because we have an understanding that these assemblies exist from recording neural activity and looking at the structural connections, but we still have yet to find exactly the rules that govern them because there's, like in this paper, it was great that they presented all the potential possibilities that should be further explored. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I guess a more specific example she gives related to the memory formation is that uh, there, there are studies that show that by activating these ensembles through repeated spiking patterns, they can activate these specific areas and change the neuron's intrinsic excitability. Mm-hmm. And it showed that cells with high intrinsic excitability during memory formation are more likely to be part of the newly formed ensemble. And so for this, for me, it just kind of raises the question a little bit of whether changing the threshold of neuronal cells could lead to the formation of ensembles or a specific formation of a type of memory. I definitely am really interested in this and I think another question it might raise is like what causes the intrinsic excitability of neurons because obviously this influences, well back to our main point, the computational units in the brain and I think um, the genetics contained within a neuron can influence its intrinsic excitability and also the structural connections that it has influences the level of spontaneous 
activity that occurs, mm. which can also influence how incoming inputs will alter that neuron's activity. So although it's not specifically intrinsic excitability, it's along the same lines. Yeah, and definitely the structure will relate to the dynamics, mm-hmm. as we have discussed <laughs> in previous episodes. Yeah, but I think just to link this all back to my original point, all these plasticity rules that relate to Habian plasticity, symmetry breaking, competition and stability act at multiple scales. For example, Habian plasticity acts at the scale of a single synapse, but then stability mechanisms would be more like of a homeostatic rule that governs a whole network, uh, etc. And so it's interesting how these different rules act at different scales to maintain or form assemblies, which is one of the potential computational units I mentioned. So clearly there's a lot of interaction, to address your first question, <laughs> between the different computational units and then these, there are rules that are both uh, unit-specific and applicable across scales. Really interesting. So, following on the same thread of thought, if we can apply the same computational laws on the neuronal level to the circuit level, or if they can communicate in that way, what does that say about reductionism and emergence? Mm, I think it says that certain things may be semi-reducible, but the number of interactions between scales And the fact that most rules are not applicable across scales Mm -hmm. leads to things such as emergence and makes the brain too complex to reduce. Nice. Very strong statement. (laughs) No, I like this. (laughs) What is it that we always say? Beliefs subject to change. Yes. (laughs) Just an asterisk at the end. Um, So the second thing I really wanted to talk about is the cortical column. So this is something that has been widely spread by Jeff Hawkins, a neuroscientist, who wrote the book A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence. Mm. And his theory of intelligence is based on the discovery of what is called a cortical column by Vernon Mountcastle in the 1950s. And a cortical column is a structure that exists in the cortex. And the cortex is the outer surface of the brain. And the neocortex, which is just the newer part of the cortex in evolutionary terms, makes up 70% of the human brain and is therefore thought to underlie a lot of human-specific abilities like human intelligence, hence the focus on it. And a cortical column is a column in the cortex that integrates information. It consists of hundreds of thousands of neurons and millions of synapses and dozens of cell types. And each column has a motor output and they all have a similar structure and work on a similar rules, I guess you could say. And just to elaborate more on the theory, he says that the neocortex contains thousands of these columns and they each have a complementary model of the world. That's the first point. The second point is that the brain also stores reference frames for a model of the world. And again, this links to our episode on spatial cognition, where we talked about uh, the cognitive map and how we base our navigation on a model of the world that our brain creates. And we talked a bit about in that episode about place cells Mm -hmm. um, and grid cells from the O'Keefe and Moser labs and these contribute to these reference frames in our brain. And then these cortical columns use the reference frames to create a consensus of what incoming information means 
and how it fits into our reference frame to ultimately represent the world. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel like that also relates a little bit to our noise episode in that like the sensory information needs to have the one over F, F. Um, oscillatory background in order to kind of integrate. I think it also links to predictive coding which we've discussed in many previous episodes whereby incoming information is compared to an existing representation mm -hmm. and then the most accurate rep uh, representation from our brains is brought to our conscious cognition yeah. and that's a theory of how cognition works. And, for example, Jeff Hawkins mentioned that we're only aware of the functional output, that is the communication between the columns. So we're not aware of what the columns are doing, we're not aware of the thousands of representations of and models of the world that we have, we're only aware of the consensus output of column to column communication when we're fitting an object with an internal representation. So interesting. Mm -hmm. And he also talks a lot about how this knowledge of how the brain works can be seriously useful for machine intelligence, as he mentions that it's something that machine intelligence needs to include in order to achieve what it wants to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. In preparation for this episode, I also read an article where David Benyagwev and his colleagues showed that they massively underpredicted the neural network capacity in comparison to biological neurons. Mm -hmm. So they, they realized that it requires at least five and eight layers of interconnected neurons to represent a single biological neuron. Wow. It, yeah, exactly. That also links to, again, dendrites. Yeah. Is, well, it's thought that the way that neurons implement this type of complexity is through their dendrites. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of these different components, not only the dendrites, but the cortical columns and mm -hmm. the layers of neurons. And also, I don't know if this is applicable, but I was wondering perhaps what if they also incorporate characteristic firing rates of specific cells, such as grid cells or place cells. I feel like that's also like a bit of a crucial bit of information that could add to the system. Definitely so much is encoded in the firing rates of neurons and also the plasticity rules that I mentioned before are based on firing rates. Mm -hmm. Like they can only be implemented when a specific type of firing is yeah. occurring. Yeah, and another thing is the biological I guess nature of the neuron and that it only fires once the inputs cause an action potential to yeah. happen, mm -hmm. once there's enough cell depolarization. To cross the threshold. To cross the threshold. Yeah. Whereas in a in a artificial neuron, they, perhaps it, it doesn't have those biological constraints. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to link neural networks back to cortical columns as well, Jeff Hawkins um, emphasizes a lot the importance of what is called a convolutional neural network, a CNN. And this is a specific type of neural network that is highly connected and feed forward. So every node in one layer of input is tied to every other node in the second layer. And then the same goes for the second and third layer and the third and fourth layer and so on and so on. And then he says this in combination with sparsity, um, active dendrites as well, and reference frames, and then the consensus model voting is what is required of a machine intelligence to be intelligent. <laughs> So to conclude this episode, I would like to continue to pose the question, how can we define computational units in the brain? Also, is do you think that any specific computational unit or informational unit is more important or necessary? 
is the most basic computational unit more important, like the genetic one or a single neuron or the dendrites, or do they interact so much that we cannot reduce? Tell us in the comments <laughs> or in response to our Spotify questions or on Anchor, Twitter. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for joining us.